I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And here's to season three of Killer Destinations. Hey, good news. Patreon is finally here. Woot woot. Go to patreon.com and search Killer Destinations. And we would be honored if you can join us. We have three different tiers. The $5 tier gives you a bonus episode and ad-free episodes every month. The second and third tiers do the same. And then, of course, have extra goodies. Exactly. As time goes on, we will be adding to our tiers and we're probably going to have a Q&A. We're probably going to do some other fun things, which haven't quite been buttoned up yet, but they are coming. We'd love to have you be part of our Patreon family. Okay, so now on to our episode. Today's destination is Lakeland, Florida. The city of 112,000 residents located in central Florida traces its roots back to the late 19th century. The region's appeal, with its abundance of lakes and fertile soil, drew the attention of pioneers and settlers. In the mid-1800s, the establishment of Fort Fraser marked a pivotal moment in Lakeland's early history. The fort provided security and support for settlers, allowing the community to gradually grow and thrive. The real catalyst for Lakeland's development, however, came with the arrival of the railroad in the late 19th century. Incorporated as a city in 1885, Lakeland saw a surge in agricultural activity. The rich soil and favorable climate led to the proliferation of citrus groves and other crops. The city's economic prosperity was further boosted by the arrival of phosphate mining in the late 1800s, which brought new wealth and opportunities to the area. Throughout the 20th century, Lakeland continued to grow and diversify. The city became known for its vibrant downtown, which boasted theaters, shops, and bustling streets. The 1930s saw the establishment of Florida Southern College, an institution renowned for its stunning collection of Frank Lloyd Wright-designed buildings. Today, Lakeland is a vibrant city, blending its rich history with a forward-looking spirit. But in 2019, the city's residents had to look to their past when a horrific event finally found its rightful conclusion. In the late summer of 1981, Linda Slayton and her two boys, 15-year-old Jeff and 12-year-old Tim, were finally getting a fresh start. Linda and the boys had recently moved from Alabama to Florida after Linda divorced the boy's dad, Frank. They'd been married for nine years, and for a large part of the marriage, Frank had been an abusive alcoholic and Linda was his target. So, after becoming pregnant for the first time at 15, divorced in her 20s, and now raising her boys on her own, Linda moved to Lakeland, where her family lived. When they first arrived, Linda and the boys lived with her parents for a while, but nothing was easy. Linda struggled for work, made her own clothes to save money, and couldn't afford a car. But she was eventually able to find a small two-bedroom apartment in the same complex as her older sister, Judy. The development had only been open for three weeks, but was almost fully occupied when Linda and her sons moved in. It consisted of 80 single-story brick duplexes that lined a long cul-de-sac. It was a low-income, federally subsidized development, and most of the people living there had young children. By September, Linda had only lived there a couple weeks, but she knew most of the residents. She was really friendly and made a point to go around and introduce herself to her neighbors. On Thursday, September 3rd, 1981, Linda and her 15-year-old son Jeff had a huge argument. As a teenager, Jeff got into a lot of arguments with his mom, but on this day, he'd gotten home from school and there was nothing to eat in the house. 
And with Linda struggling to find work, there often wasn't much food for the three of them. Jeff was so mad that he walked out the door and rode his bike 11 miles to his grandparents' house to get something to eat. And I got to tell you, Kath, I can see your younger brother actually doing the same thing. Right. You know? <laughs> Where it's like, I don't care if I'm biking 11 miles. Right. I was far too lazy for that. Oh, yeah. It's a total guy thing to do. I would have eaten the bad corn chips we had or whatever. <laughs> 12-year-old Tim arrived home that night at around 8.30 after football practice. Like always, one of Tim's coaches, Coach Jim, dropped him off. Linda's parents dropped Jeff at home at around 9 or 9.30, and he was awake when his mom and Tim got home at 11. By now, Jeff had cooled off. A 10-plus mile bike ride will do that to you. (laughs) And as Linda washed the dishes before going to bed, Jeff told her he loved her and he'd see her in the morning. According to 48 Hours, Season 36, Episode 3, the next morning, Friday, September 4th, 1981, Linda's sister Judy, who only lived three doors down from Linda, went to her apartment at 8.30 to see if she wanted to have coffee together. Judy knocked on the front door several times, but no one answered. As she was leaving, she noticed that Linda's bedroom window was wide open and the window screen was on the ground. Now, Kath, I saw a picture of the duplex and basically it was two apartments next to each other. And so when you're at the front door, you're looking at the sidewalk that runs in front of these apartments. When Judy left, she walked past the right side of the house and that's where Linda's bedroom window was. And so as she was walking, she just happened to notice that the screen was off and that the window was wide open. Judy walked over and looked inside the bedroom, and the first thing she saw was Linda's body lying across the bed. At first, Judy thought Linda was sleeping, but then she noticed something was wrapped around her sister's neck. Judy started screaming. When police arrived, they found the partially nude body of 31-year-old Linda Slayton with a wire coat hanger twisted around her neck. She had been beaten, raped, and strangled. It was clear to detectives that the killer had entered her bedroom through the open window. Since the apartment only had two small bedrooms, Linda and her youngest son, Tim, slept in the bedrooms and Jeff slept on a cot in the living room. It was the crackle of the police radios that woke Jeff up. When he saw the police officers, he asked what was going on. He was told to put on some clothes and go wait outside. When Jeff walked outside, he saw what he thought looked like every cop in the state of Florida, news crews, as well as his Aunt Judy, who was crying. She walked up to Jeff and told him that his mom had been murdered. A different officer went into the younger boy's bedroom to wake him up. He told Tim to wake up and go outside and be with Jeff. Tim didn't know why the police were in his home or what was going on, but he did as he was told. As Tim walked out of his bedroom, he walked past his mother's closed bedroom door. Unexpectedly, it swung open as an officer walked out of the room. Tim looked inside and saw his mother's bloody body with a coat hanger around her neck. In this episode, the 48 Hours episode we referenced, Tim was interviewed and he said, understandably, this is an image that has never left his mind. Oh, I can imagine. Oh. Sergeant Edgar Pickett was a fingerprint expert who led the crime scene unit with the Lakeland Police Department. He told 48 Hours that when he arrived on the scene, he had never seen anybody in as bad a shape as they found Linda. And Kathy, somebody who's clearly been to so many homicide scenes, what does that mean? Oh, yeah. How bad? I don't think any of us, hopefully, can fathom what that looks like. Yeah. 
Sergeant Pickett believed Linda Slayton had been strangled with a coat hanger from her own closet and that the killer may have been hiding in her closet when she and her boys got home the night before, which, by the way, is freaking terrifying. With this in mind, he dusted most of the bedroom for fingerprints and even the floor. And then he saw a print on the windowsill, but it wasn't a fingerprint. It was a palm print. And this was rare. An autopsy later confirmed what the police already knew. Linda Slayton was raped and strangled to death. Swabs taken from the body revealed semen, and all of the forensic evidence discovered was preserved in a rape kit. After their mother was murdered, Jeff and Tim went to live with their grandparents. In the episode we referenced, Jeff and Tim said dealing with their mother's murder was very hard and that they were scared to death that someone, some sort of monster, was after them. They just stayed in their grandparents' house and didn't go anywhere. For the first few days, the brothers and their grandparents all slept in the same room. Except Kathy, their grandfather did not sleep in that room. He stood guard with a gun while the other three slept. Those poor kids, of course they felt like somebody was after them. But how awesome was Grandpa for doing that? Oh, totally. It's like the boogeyman that I saw in the hotel. Like, you just don't know where they're going to pop up. And I'm sure he said, don't worry, I'll stand watch. Oh, yeah. Which is why they were able to go to sleep. No, exactly. That's why he was doing that. The grandparents hoped a quick return to familiar routines would help their grandsons. So a few weeks after their mom's funeral, the boys were back in school. For Tim, football provided a lifeline. His teammates and Coach Joe were always supportive and were always there to boost him up. Coach Joe even continued to give him rides to and from practice and their games. As we'd mentioned, Linda didn't have enough money for a car, which was why Coach Joe was driving Tim to and from practice and games in the first place. So even though his grandparents have cars, Coach Joe continued to do this to help the family. In the episode, Tim also talked about a football team photo that was taken a month after his mom was murdered. He said he hung it in his bedroom as a reminder of something his mom taught him. Keep moving forward and never give up. After Linda's murder... All of the complex's residents were closing and locking their windows during the night and day, and several people said they were moving out. Two days after Linda's murder, Dan Bernstein with the Tampa Tribune reported that a woman named Diane, who lived in the complex, arrived home at about 3 a.m. the day prior. She had talked two of her friends into spending the night there with her because she was afraid of being alone after what happened to Linda. When Diane and her friends got to her duplex, the curtain on her front window was open and they saw the shadow of someone inside. When she saw the curtain being shut, they drove off and called the police. I can't even imagine. Okay, Kath, you know what that reminds me of, though? Huh. And I know this is totally apples and oranges, but for some reason reading this reminded me of it. Do you remember a few years ago, this was probably like five, six, seven years ago, when we were at the Best Lake on summer vacation and we were renting that house. And we had been watching videos on YouTube. (laughs) So where we go, it's in the mountains, there's a lake, but of course there's no streetlights. So Kathy and my sister and I are sitting on the back deck after everyone's gone to bed and we're watching this video that one of her kids had showed us. And it was, oh my God, it was awful. It was probably a lot of people have seen it. Oh, I'm sure most people have, but it was a video. It was a prank video that was recorded. I think it was a South American video. I I think so too. That's where it started. But somebody would get on an elevator. It would go dark. And then when the lights went back on again, there was this creepy looking little girl there next to them. Yeah. And she would just stare and wouldn't say anything. But then she'd be like, <sighs> yeah. <laughs> so we're in the back. There's still like string lights out. So it's not completely dark for us. 
But as we're sitting there, we got hit with a power outage and it went pitch black. Yeah, the entire canyon went pitch black. And we were like, ah! And of course, all three of us screamed. Yeah. But then all three of us would not separate to get into the house. Right. We were literally like in a we were like, like in a huddle. Yeah, we were like an amoeba unit, exactly. just like moving into the house, Shuffling screaming. across yeah. to get to the house. Yeah. So my sister's at the sliding glass door. She opens the door and unbeknownst to her, Kathy's youngest is there. And Kathy's youngest goes. <laughs> <laughs> it is a miracle that the police didn't come. We were screaming so loud. And they it didn't was... come in Austin either. I know. What is it with women's screams? But not only that, but no other family member came but running it was, either. It was like. <laughs> terrifying it was so well played by my youngest daughter it, it like was, that timing the was go down in history yeah the timing was spot on absolutely when police arrived at diane's duplex they didn't see anyone thankfully but upon investigating further they discovered the back screen door had been torn and there were pry marks on the frame however they were not able to confirm that someone had been in the apartment Diane said nothing was taken, but she was afraid that the person who broke in did so with the intent to assault her when she got home. Which I would believe that. Oh, heck yeah. She had already made arrangements for her four children to stay with relatives, but told the reporter that if the police didn't catch the killer soon, she would also stay somewhere else. Another neighbor reported that she wasn't afraid of being raped. She was too old. Of course, she didn't give her age. Exactly. She was probably like 40. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But she discovered that the corner of the screen to her 16-year-old daughter's window had been pried open. Neither she nor her daughter had heard anything the night before. One week after Linda Slayton was strangled to death, six detectives had been assigned to find her killer. The police said that while they had several leads, they had no suspects. And because there had been several reports of suspicious persons in the duplex development, the Lakeland police increased patrols and had a heavy police presence in the area. As police began looking for suspects, there were two that made the top of the list. Her ex-husband, Frank, and the ex-boyfriend who she broke up with in Alabama that led Linda to move with her sons to Florida. However, police quickly verified that both men were in Alabama at the time Linda was killed. Now, at the time of her death, Linda had a new boyfriend, but he too had an alibi. Detectives looked at other possible suspects, but no one was charged. Now, Kathy, this was interesting. In the 48 Hours episode, Linda's son, Jeff, this is the older son, said that early in the investigation, police were seriously looking at him as a possible suspect. I guess Lakeland police detectives would go to his high school and pull him out and take him to the station and interrogate him. Wow. And Tim said that police pulled him out of school a couple of times without an attorney to interrogate him about his brother. I'm sure all of the Q&As with the boys were without attorneys. Oh, yeah. No, they absolutely were. The reason Jeff thinks this happened is that after his mom was killed, he was up front with detectives that he and his mom frequently argued and then told them about the fight that they had had the night before she died. One of the detectives apparently said, my, you have really big arms. I think you're probably strong enough to strangle your mom. Said that to the boy? To the 15-year-old boy whose mom was killed. That is obnoxious. As you would imagine, Jeff said, he's still scarred by that. Like, what kind of person does that? At the beginning of all this, Kathy, police had given Jeff a lie detector test, which he passed. However, they continued to pull him out of school. But when police suggested putting Jeff under hypnosis, his grandfather said, enough. He told the detectives, you go find out who killed my daughter and leave our grandson alone. 
According to the Lakeland Police report, two weeks after the grandparents stopped this madness, Jeff took a second polygraph test and was again cleared. Unfortunately, after that, the investigation slowed down and then went cold. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, <laughs> despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Neither Jeff nor Tim went on to finish high school, but both were able to get steady jobs. One became a welder and the other became a truck driver. Despite their lack of a formal education, their jobs allowed them to create a financially stable life for their families, and they knew their mother would be proud. Both men got married and had children, but they have never been able to get over their mother's murder. Jeff, especially, who was sleeping in the living room, still feels guilty that he didn't hear anything happening in his mother's bedroom. He said he would have died that night trying to save his mom. Around the 20th anniversary of their mother's murder in 2001, Lakeland Police Detective Brad Grice took a fresh look at the case. There was not a cold case unit, so it wasn't something that he could devote all of his time to, but he was sure that DNA technology would finally help them find Linda Slayton's killer. He'd already sent DNA from Linda's rape kit to the state's major crime lab at the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, the FDLE, which had developed a full DNA profile of Linda's unknown killer. They just needed DNA to compare it to. Detective Grice reached out to Jeff and Tim and asked the brothers to meet him at the station to discuss their mother's case. And you know, Kathy, in a really strange coincidence, it turns out that Detective Grice and Jeff had known each other for like 15, 20 years. They apparently played in the same bowling league. So they didn't know last names. They didn't know occupations. They just saw each other every... Oh, how funny. Yeah. And so they said when they both walked into the room, they looked at each other and they're like, I know you. Oh, how fun. I played two, no, probably like a year and a half, maybe two seasons in a bowling league in Huntington Beach and had a blast. I remember you talking about it. Yeah, I was a pretty bad bowler, but yeah, I had fun but socially. Not the point. Exactly. <laughs> it wasn't my point anyway. Yeah. A lot of other people, that was their point. <laughs> Detective Grice took DNA samples from the brothers to clear them officially, then gave Jeff something in return a promise. Jeff asked the detective to promise that he would not retire until he solved Jeff's mother's murder case. And Detective Grice made the promise. Through his renewed investigation, Detective Grice took dozens of DNA samples from prior persons of interest, submitting them to the FDLE for comparison. Even Linda's ex-husband, who by this time had stopped drinking, volunteered a sample. Unfortunately, none were a match. Within a few months, Detective Grice received a tip. 
Nearly a year after Linda's murder, a 24-year-old man named Jimmy Ulmer was convicted of pulling a 10-year-old girl through her bedroom window and almost killing her. He was sentenced to 80 years in prison. This was similar enough to Linda's case that Detective Grice looked into Jimmy Ulmer. Shockingly, at the time of Linda's death, Ulmer was staying with a friend who lived in the same apartment complex as the Slaytons. Wow, those are lottery odds. I know, for real. Although Ulmer had died in prison five years prior, Detective Grice was able to get DNA samples from Ulmer's mother. Kath, he truly felt that they had found their man, but the DNA was not a match. Of course, Detective Grice was disheartened. You know, he was afraid that he'd never be able to find this killer. By 2005, four years after Detective Grice began looking into Linda's cold case, he was now assigned to lead the newly established cold case unit. He also had the FBI running the killer's DNA through their database. On the 25th anniversary of Linda Slayton's murder, on September 4, 2006, Billy Townsend with the Tampa Tribune talked to Jeff and Tim Slayton. The brothers were now older than their mother, who was 31 when she died. Both men said they still thought about their mom every day. Earlier that year, they put up an $8,000 reward for information leading to an arrest in the case. And this was in addition to a $2,000 reward offered by Crime Stoppers. The brothers were hopeful that $10,000 was enough to generate a tip that could give the police a name that would link to the DNA police recovered from the crime scene. The brothers said that until there was a match, anxiety, rage, and grief would continue to plague them. Tim, the younger brother, said, For years, I slept with a knife under my pillow. I had baseball bats, guns. I want to be normal, to not have to worry about this. The reporter was unable to look at the files related to Linda's murder because it was an ongoing investigation, but detectives and the brothers described to the reporter what they knew of the crime and its aftermath. Lakeland Police Detective Mike Ivankovich confirmed that police scrutinized Jeff Slayton in the days after the killing, but didn't know if he was actually considered a suspect. And I'm going to have to disagree with that, because based on what we've heard, if they were giving him lie detector tests, two of them, pulling him out yeah, of school. They considered him hypnosis, a suspect. Exactly. Yeah. You know what they're thinking? They're thinking a 15-year-old boy who's angry enough to ride a bike 11 miles to get food is really mad at his mom. I agree. Detective Ivankovich said it really was just that it was common to focus on people close to the victim. But year after year, there was no match. And then Detective Grice had to break his promise to Jeff. He'd had some medical issues. And in 2015, Detective Grice retired without solving Linda's case. Jeff said that after Detective Grice retired, he started trying to come to terms with the fact that he would probably die without ever knowing who killed his mom. According to the 48 Hours episode previously mentioned, just three years after Detective Grice retired, there was renewed hope. A groundbreaking DNA technology offered hope to the law enforcement community. Genetic genealogy. And Cece Moore, a renowned expert in the field of genetic genealogy, agreed to take on the Linda Slayton case. We've talked about Cece Moore before. Yeah, several she's times. She's definitely the most... She's the grand dame of DNA. That's exactly right. Cece was determined to help the Slayton brothers find out who killed their mom. During Linda's autopsy, swabs were collected that contained semen. Investigators carefully preserved the rape kit for years. Cece Moore began her search for Linda's killer by uploading the anonymous DNA from the rape kit to a public genealogy website called GEDmatch. 
she then meticulously constructed, branch by branch, the killer's genetic family tree. Now, Kath Jedmatch looks for different points of interest than CODIS does. She began by building the family trees of those people who shared any DNA with him. Then she identified common ancestors between those people. She made those connections by poring over birth certificates, marriage licenses, obituaries, and social media to fill in the family tree with names. These matches all shared DNA with each other, so they became her first genetic network. Ultimately, Cece uncovered three genetic networks, branches of the killer's family that ultimately narrowed to the one person most likely responsible for the murder of Linda Slayton. According to Cece, those three genetic networks converged into one family, and in that family, there was only one son. Since they knew their killer was male, this family member had to be the DNA contributor. And what Cece Moore said in this episode also is that it took her a weekend to find this guy. That is incredible to me. I know. That's insane. And it's why she's the best of the best. Yeah. The killer was identified as Joseph Clinton Mills. He was 58 years old and lived in Kathleen, Florida, about 30 minutes from the Slayton's duplex. But authorities wanted to be certain this man was the killer before they notified the brothers. Detectives Tammy Hathcock and Russell Hurley took over Linda Slayton's case after Detective Grice retired. Detective Hathcock remembered seeing the name in the case files, but it was clear that no one named Joseph Mills was ever brought in for questioning. In 1984, three years after Linda's murder, Mills was convicted of grand theft for forging a will. And Kathy, I looked into this. I wanted to know whose will, all of that, because that's interesting to me, but never saw any details. And I think it's just because it was so long ago. He never went to jail for this conviction, but he was fingerprinted and a palm print was taken at this time. His palm print was then compared to the palm print Sergeant Edgar Pickett found on Linda's windowsill 38 years prior. They were a match. So, high-tech genetic genealogy identified Joseph Mills as a likely killer, and an old-fashioned palm print match helped confirm his identity. But detectives Hathcock and Hurley still needed to compare a fresh DNA sample from Mills to the decades-old DNA recovered from the crime scenes. They started surveillance on Mills to try and get his DNA without tipping him off. They followed him for several weekends trying to get anything with DNA on it. A coffee cup, a napkin, tissue, anything that he threw away. But in all that time, Mills never threw anything away in public. It could have been that he thought people were surveilling him, but I usually don't throw stuff away in public. Which is weird. No, it's not, because I (laughs) don't have crap in my car. Oh, I have tons of crap in my car. (laughs) So that's what's different. (laughs) The detectives decided it was time to get their hands dirty, and they covertly went to Mills' house on trash day and took a trash bag back to the police department. They discovered a piece of used medical adhesive tape and sent it off to the FDLE crime lab for testing. While they waited for the results, the detectives did a deep dive to learn who Joseph Mills was. They discovered over the past 38 years, he lived in the same house, was married to the same woman, and had children and grandchildren. He had been a truck driver over the years, but in 2019, he owned a cleaning service. Eleven days after sending the adhesive tape to the crime lab for testing, the lab results came back. Joseph Mills' 2019 DNA found on the medical tape and the 1981 unknown DNA from Linda Slayton's rape kit was an exact match. That's when the brothers were told the monster had been found. I don't know if this is the appropriate time to say it, but it's always kind of bizarre 
when somebody's like married and has kids and grandkids, it's like you almost expect them to be these monsters living by themselves. But they rarely are. You know, I know. That's true. Jeff and Tim were shocked to learn that Joseph Mills killed their mom, but they didn't know him by that name. They only knew him as Coach Joe. Tim was especially gutted because he still had the football team picture taken a month after his mother was murdered hanging in his house. He used that picture to remind him what his mother taught him about moving forward and never giving up. Standing directly behind Tim in the picture was Coach Joe. He'd killed Tim's mom just one month prior. I can't imagine how Tim felt. Oh, betrayal. This was somebody he idolized. Totally. According to Tim, Coach Joe continued driving him to and from football practice, as we said earlier, after he moved into his grandparents' house. Coach Joe wouldn't ask specific questions during the drive, but he would ask, how's your mom's murder case going? Are there any new leads? Are they looking at any suspects? Things like that. Tim, of course, thought they were innocent questions. On Thursday, December 12, 2019, the detectives arrested Joseph Clinton Mills. The 48 Hours episode showed Detective Hathcock sitting next to Mills in the backseat of a police car reading him his rights. Mills didn't ask why he was being arrested or show any emotion at all. Isn't that strange? Like, if you were arrested, if handcuffs came out... Again, you mean? Yeah. I'm just kidding. Well, I didn't want to say that, but yeah. You still have that story to tell. (laughs) No, I don't. Yes, you do. (laughs) But wouldn't you say, why am I being arrested? Wouldn't that be the first question on your mind? Well, if you're innocent, yes. Well, yeah, Yeah. true, but still. Yeah, and I never had handcuffs, by the way. (laughs) Well... Detectives Tammy Hathcock and Russell Hurley placed Mills in an interview room as soon as they got back to the station. Detective Hurley said, It's been 38 years, and I'm sure you go to bed every night thinking about this. I have no doubt in my mind. Mills responded, When I picked the boys up, we stayed in the vehicle, and I don't recall going in or out of that house, period. And then Detective Tammy Hathcock says, What we have tells us a different story, okay? You were in that apartment. The detectives then told Mills they had overwhelming evidence placing him inside Linda Slayton's bedroom. When Detective Hathcock told him about his fingerprints and the DNA match that was found at the crime scene, Mills changed his story. Detective Hurley said, and then how do you end up crawling through her window? And Mills said, it was like an invitation from Linda Slayton for consensual sex. Then Mills said it was a sex game that she had a hanger around her neck when he came through the window and she asked him to tighten it down. And then Detective Hurley said, and then did you start applying pressure? And Mills says, yes. So obviously he's trying to make it out to be some sex game, but the detectives are not buying it, especially when Detective Hurley pointed out the brutality of the crime and how deep this hanger was into Linda's neck when she was found the next day. It was also the fact that the screen on the window had been taken off from the outside. So an open window with a screen, how is that an invitation? The detectives believed that after dropping off Tim from football practice on September 3rd, 1981, Coach Joe returned later that night and broke in through Linda Slayton's bedroom window. They believed no one heard Mills because no one was home. Jeff was still at his grandparents' house and Linda and Tim were playing cards next door. The hanger around Linda's neck obviously came from the closet, and they believed Mills was hiding in there waiting for the right time to strike. When Detective Brad Grice found out who the murderer was, 
He said he always suspected the killer's name was buried somewhere in the thick police case file. And while Detective Grice blames himself for not taking a harder look at Joseph Mills, the Slayton brothers don't agree. They feel nothing but gratitude to the detective and friend who spent 17 years chasing the elusive killer. And Kath, Jeff Slayton, the older brother, actually named his son Brad in honor of his friend. After Mills was caught, Jeff and Tim had a chance to meet Sergeant Edgar Pickett, the former investigator with the foresight to take the palm print. Now 94 years old, the brothers said they had always wanted to thank him for all that he did for their mother after she was killed. They believed that without Sergeant Pickett's work, the murderer would still be free. Kathy, what was interesting, in this 48 Hours episode, Sergeant Pickett, now 94 as we said, he was interviewed. And he said this is the case that he could never forget. And most of that was because of the state he found her in. Remember, he had made the comment, all of the murder scenes, he'd never seen anything like what he saw in Linda's bedroom. Sergeant Pickett had a very distinguished and trailblazing 29-year career with the Lakeland Police Department. And he really had seen it all. And as a matter of fact, Kathy, the crime lab at the Lakeland Police Department is actually named after him and another officer because Sergeant Pickett and this other officer were the ones who were pushing for the advances in technology to help them solve crimes. He never knew police had questioned a man named Joseph Mills just one day after the killing. Instead, Sergeant Pickett, who was black, said he was asked to compare prints of a number of black men who were questioned in the days after the murder following neighbors' reports of suspicious activity. He also said it doesn't just haunt him, but it actually pisses him off. Those are my words, not him. He was a very erudite gentleman when they interviewed him. But he said black men who had nothing to do with it were rounded up and fingerprinted, but the white football coach who drove to Linda's house all the time wasn't even interviewed in person. It turns out he was interviewed on the phone. Not only that, but he was never considered a suspect. Sergeant Pickett passed away in April of 2023, so just six months ago, at the age of 94. To avoid a trial and a possible death sentence, Joseph Mills pled guilty to all charges, including first-degree murder, sexual battery, and burglary. At his sentencing, what Linda Slayton's family wanted most to know was the answer to the question, why? Jeff Slayton yelled that question at Mills before he was sentenced for his mother's murder. He yelled, why? I just don't know why, Joe. Why'd you take my mama from me? I loved my mama. We were happy. The brothers tried to make Mills look them in the eye, but he would not do it. Linda's sister, Judy, who discovered Linda's body, was still devastated all these years later at Linda's violent death. When she looked at Mills, she saw no remorse and no humanity. Apparently, the Slayton family weren't the only ones enraged by Mills. A few minutes after the victim impact statements, Mills made comments to the court that angered the judge. In court, Joseph Mills said, I am a good person. I'm not that person they're painting me out to be. The judge sentenced Mills to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And while Jeff and Tim say they feel comfort knowing Coach Joe will never leave prison alive, there's still anger because he never took full responsibility for the premeditated rape and murder of their mother. He never apologized. Mills was also able to live his life and raise his family, something their mother was never able to do because of him. 
Jeff said, she'd still be here today. She'd only be 72. I could have had her my whole life. Jeff and Tim are determined to move on as best they can to live life well for their mom and for their families. The brothers also know they never would have survived their ordeal without each other. They remain extremely close, live just a few miles apart, and share hobbies such as restoring cars. Jeff said, I always think my mom is looking down on us. I want to make her proud. Thank you for listening. If you haven't joined Patreon while you've been listening to this episode, please do so now. (laughs) I don't hear clicking of the keys on your keyboard. (laughs) I don't see our bank account getting any fatter. I'm just kidding. (laughs) And if you have any case suggestions, please hit us up on Instagram. And we were remiss when we did the Jody Plochet episode not to thank Marie, one of our listeners who suggested the case for us. Yes. Thank you, Marie. Thanks. Thanks.